Warning, the following podcast is not suitable for all audiences. We go into great detail with every case that we cover and do our best to bring viewers even deeper into the stories by utilizing disturbing audio and sound effects. Trigger warnings from the stories we cover may include violence, rape, murder, and offenses against children. This podcast is not for everyone. You have been warned. There are few true crime cases out there that bring me to tears. Many make me upset or even angry. But when my daily job is to research and write about gruesome crimes across the country, it's easy to become desensitized to stories of murder. But it's impossible to become desensitized towards this case. This is the case that brings me to tears every single time. A story about an innocent nine-year-old child who was savagely taken from this world by another child. There are no winners in this story, no satisfying guilty verdicts, no relief from grieving family members, just a story about a senseless murder and a loss of innocence. But if you stick around to the end, you'll see that our story takes a turn for the better, and hopefully your faith in humanity will be restored. You're listening to Murder in America. Our story starts on the west side of Michigan in a city called Kentwood. Kentwood is a suburb of Grand Rapids, Michigan, with a population of around 50,000 people and is located fairly close to Lake Michigan. When you Google the city and click on their official website, it looks like a beautiful place, a friendly community. But as we've seen throughout all of our previous stories, there are no cities that are immune to tragedy. I'm sure that Kentwood is genuinely a great place where many people live happy and safe lives. But according to the website NeighborhoodScout.com, the city does seem to have its fair share of crime. The site states, From our analysis, we discovered that violent crime in Kenwood occurs at a higher rate than in most communities of all population sizes in America. The chance that a person will become a victim of a violent crime in Kenwood, such as armed robbery, aggravated assault, rape, or murder, is 1 in 316. And just because a city has a higher crime rate, that doesn't mean that it isn't a great place to live or raise a family. After hearing those statistics, it would seem pretty unlikely that the people of Kentwood would even have to worry about being victims of violent crime. One in 316. That doesn't sound too threatening, right? And I'm sure that people go about their days without even having to watch their backs at all. But when you do think about the violent crimes committed in Kentwood, what do you picture? Do you think of an armed robbery gone wrong? Or maybe a domestic assault between husband and wife? Or do you picture a young 12-year-old child stabbing another child to death 
on a playground. That's definitely not what we pictured. But unfortunately, that's how our story starts on August 4th, 2014. Kent County 911, where's your emergency? Uh, can I have a police officer at 5657 Madison? So it's 5657? Yes. Okay. And what's happening there? I just stabbed someone. You did? Yes. Who, who was it that you just stabbed? I don't know. It was a beautiful day in Kentwood, Michigan on August 4th, 2014. It was a Monday. The weather was warm with a temperature of about 80 degrees with partly cloudy skies. And children were running throughout the neighborhoods, enjoying the last few weeks of summer that they had to enjoy before school was to start again. In the neighborhood of Pinebrook Village lived the two Verkirky boys. There was Cameron, who was seven years old, and Connor, who was nine. Connor, growing older, was supposed to start the fourth grade after that summer. He loved to dance, play soccer, and spend time outside. He also loved his little brothers. Connor and Cameron were close in age, and the two were very close to one another, and also extremely active, like most seven and nine-year-old boys. And on that fateful day, they were tired of being inside, so they went out to the front yard to play with one of their friends named James. And I feel like everyone can remember days like this from their childhood. Running around the block with your friends, using your imagination, and not having a single care in the world. This was exactly the type of day that Connor Verkirky was having, and he had no reason to believe that his world would change in just a few moments. As Connor and Cameron were playing, they see another young boy walking in their direction. The young boy, who looked to be a few years older than the rest of the kids, introduces himself as Jamarian Lawhorn, and he asks if he can play with them. Immediately, Connor Verkirky gladly accepts Jamarian into their friend group, even though they had never met before. This was just the kind of kid that Connor was, friendly and accepting. They made so many new friends this summer. They accepted everybody into their group. After a few minutes, Jamarian suggests that they all head to the playground. The playground was close by, so close, in fact, that you could even see it from the Verkirky's backyard. It was a place that they all frequented, a place that seemed safe and familiar. So the boys agreed. As they walk to the playground, they attempt to get to know Jamarian, asking him how old he was, where he went to school, all childhood small talk. For about 10 minutes, the group spends time going down the slides, going across the monkey bars, and even playing in the sand. At one point, Connor decides that he wants to climb up the slide. And as he's climbing, he loses his grip for a second and falls down. And next, the unthinkable happens. As he's bent over, recovering from his fall, Jamarian appears out of nowhere, having taken his shirt off, and he's holding a kitchen knife in his hands. Before Connor can even see what is coming, Jamarian stabs him four times in the back. The boys on the playground witness Connor getting stabbed, and against all instincts, Connor's little brother Cameron runs to his side to help him. The playground is in complete chaos at this point. Their friend James takes off running back to his house, and as Cameron is trying to help his brother, Jamarian takes off running down the street and throws the knife in the grass. Connor is barely even able to stand at this point after being stabbed four times, and in a heroic act, his seven-year-old brother lifts him up, throws his arm around him, and practically carries him back to their home. 
This is Cameron's account of that day. Connor started going to my best friend James and Jamar just started stabbing him. Was Connor bleeding? Yes. Where was he bleeding from? Only showed it coming from the back. As they're approaching the house, Cameron and Connor's parents hear a commotion in their front yard. Their dad, Jared, a trained first responder, was the first to see Connor. He immediately yells out to his wife to grab something to put on his son's wounds. The mom, Danny, in a panic, grabs a pair of swim trunks, the closest item within reach. When she walks outside, Connor had collapsed on the family's front porch, and there was blood everywhere. And I can't even begin to imagine the horror that Danny and Jared experienced within those few moments. The only thing you want to do as a parent is to love and protect your children. And I'm sure the feeling of helplessness consumed them. Danny later testified in court that when she saw Connor on the porch, his eyes were bloodshot. He was taking short and shallow breaths and that there was blood streaming out of his mouth. As they were trying to apply pressure to his wounds, Connor's blood flowed and coated the front porch that was once full of happy memories. Several people had called 911 at this point. Danny said that it took around five to 10 minutes for the ambulance to arrive, but it felt like an eternity. Connor spent the entirety of those minutes reminding his family that he loved them. I immediately knew the situation was bad. As mom held Connor's hand, dad tried to stop the bleeding while kissing his son's forehead. He was saying that he loves us and he kept trying to roll over so he could look at me and Jared. The last thing I heard him say was when they were wheeling him into the ambulance, he said, Mama. One of Connor's last words was Mama. This is a pattern that we've noticed throughout a lot of our research. A lot of people's last words before dying are about their mothers. And I'm glad Connor's last few moments were spent with his family telling them that he loved them because soon after he was taken away in the ambulance, Connor passed away. Connor changed my life. I think that your first kid always does that. He changed everything. He made me a better person. He was always so naturally compassionate and loving and it inspired you to emulate and just, just, To always want to do better. He was so genuine about it, too. One of the boys who was at the playground when the incident took place ran home and told his mom. And this is what she had to say. He he came to, like, on our street and got the kids to go to the park. The kids were talking to him, asking him, like, where are you from? What you doing? It was random. There was no reason. It wasn't provoked. They weren't fighting. There was no words exchanged. It was just malicious. There were three boys at that park. He picked a random one. So it could have been your son. Could have been the other other kid, too. Could have been anybody. As everyone was trying to piece together what had just happened, it was difficult for them to come to any sort of sensible conclusion. A random boy that the kids had just met had snapped and stabbed Connor to death for no reason. There was no fight, no argument, no animosity. Just a random act of violence committed, shockingly, by a child. In the same part of town, a young man named Glenn Stacy, who had worked with children throughout his life, sees a kid approach his yard. It was Jamarian Lawhorn, the kid who had just stabbed and killed Connor. To Glenn, Jamarian looks like an innocent 12-year-old, and he had no reason to believe that the young man in his yard had just committed a heinous murder. 
As Jamarian is standing there, he asks if he can use his phone. Glenn assumes that the boy is lost or needs a ride home and needs to call his mom. So he lends Jamarian his phone. Young man approached my house, wanted to borrow my phone. I assume he wanted to call his mother. And he said, hi, I stabbed someone, please pick me up. So he approached me over at my house, offered, I offered him my phone. I assume he was calling his mother. Lo and behold, he was calling 911 to say, I stabbed someone, please pick me up, and I'd like to end my life. It devastates me because I used to work with youth, so my heart really goes out to this kid and the possible victim. King County 911, where's your emergency? Uh, can I have a police officer at 5657 Madison? So it's 5657? Yes. Okay. And what's happening there? I just stabbed someone. You did? Yes. Who, who was it that you just stabbed? I don't know. I'm fed up with life. You what? I'm fed up with life. Okay, did you stab yourself? No. Well, I did take a whole bunch of kills, pills to kill myself. Okay, what's they your name? Jamarian Lawhorn. What is your first name? Come get me lock me up forever. Okay. For life. Okay, did you... Is that out. Take me to hurt. Jupiter. I don't want to be on this earth anymore. Kill me. Okay, that person you stabbed, are they there with you? No. Where are they? I don't know. He ran. He ran off? Did you hurry up and come and get me? Yeah, we're on the way, but I just, I'm going to ask you some more questions. Can you spell your first name? I didn't understand it. J-A-M-A-R-I-O-N. Okay, and your last name? Lawhorn. L-A-W-H-O-R-N. Okay, and you don't know who this person was that just came up by you? Nope. Okay. And do you still have the knife? No. Okay. What did you stab them with? A knife. Okay. Where is that? In the grass. Okay, so it's out in the grass? Mm-hmm. And the person you stabbed was a male, right? Hurry up. Hurry up, why? What, what are you doing? The person just came. They're going okay. to try to beat me. They're going to try to beat me, so hurry up and come kill me or take me to jail, do something. Exactly me how you do on movies. Give me an electric tray. I don't care how I die. Just in the way. Okay. All right. What do you, who is, who's there with you? Who did you ask the address of? Some man. Come for me. Who did you ask the address to? Who was that guy? Excuse me, did I get your name? Quinn. Quinn? Yep. Okay. Is she, is she, is he there with you? Did he see who you stabbed? What's going on? I don't understand what's nope. going on. They found the knife, too. They found the knife. Did he get stabbed? Did you stab yeah. him? They're going to come and kill me. Yes, I did it. Because I'm fed up with life and I want to die. I'm right here. I don't care. Jamarian's voice is cold and matter-of-fact as he's speaking to dispatch. He even gets angry and loses his temper at certain points, saying, I'm fed up with life and I want to die. And as horrible as his crime was, it's absolutely heartbreaking to hear a 12-year-old tell someone that that's what he wants to do, that he wants to die. 
You can hear the pain in his voice as he tells dispatch to come and kill him. And it makes you wonder, what compels a 12-year-old boy with a clean record and no history of violence to commit such a crime? Six o'clock, we were, we were sent to the, to the, uh, to the scene. Um, and uh, what we learned is that there were essentially four children playing in, in, the, in the playground area when, for an unknown reason, uh, one of them produced a knife and stabbed repeatedly one of the, um, one of the other children in the back. The uh, victim ran to his nearby residence where he collapsed on the porch. Uh, EMS was summoned and uh, he was transported to a, a local hospital where he eventually uh, passed away. Um, the suspect in this case went to a nearby residence, asked to use the phone, uh, called the police, and basically, you know, said, come pick me up. We've had, um, as a community, our fair share of, of tragic events. And, uh, you know, this one is, is, is very tragic, too, because it, it just doesn't make sense. And I think all of us are struggling, you know, trying to struggle with why. Life after Connor's death was very difficult for the Verkirky family. A vigil was held in his honor, but Jared and Danny were so grief-stricken that they couldn't bring themselves to attend. The memory of their house was so hard on them that they stayed with family members for a period of time. Danny said that she would sleep with Connor's blanket every single night so that she could feel closer to him. On August 13, 2014, Connor's funeral was held at the Cornerstone Church, and the residents of Kentwood and the surrounding areas filled the chapel with hundreds of people. Connor's friends, family, and fellow Cub Scouts were in attendance that day. And Connor's brother Cameron, wearing a Cub Scouts uniform, steps up to the podium to share a few words about his brother. He stated, quote, It's hard to go through this, but he's in a better place. And we know that he doesn't want us to be sad all of our life. We know he wants us to be happy, even though it's really hard to. End quote. His father, Jared, shared a touching story as well, saying, One day, we were getting dinner ready, and he looks at me, and he goes, Dad, why are we here? And I went, Well, we are making dinner. Then Connor asked, No, why are we here? What's the purpose of it all? I looked at him and told him, to live as good men, to love unconditionally, and to do service unto others. My nine-year-old son encompassed those beliefs better in his nine years than I have been able to accomplish in my 30. And although no one explicitly brought up Jamarian at the funeral, Connor's grandma, Tony, said this, quote, When all of this happened, we questioned, why? Why did this happen? It's a senseless tragedy. Connor had a magnificent life. And yet, the other side of truth is we live in a world where there are thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of children who do not have a village like this. Our instinct, and I know this was for us too, was to bring our children up close and close the doors of the gates of the village and to say, let's protect them. Let's bring out the weapons so that we can protect ourselves and protect our children. But maybe the answer is to open the gates of the village and bring every child in, every parent in, every villager in. Bring them inside and hold them. And when that love enfolds them, I think we can make 
a difference. Our work is not done. I thank you from the bottom of my broken heart. End quote. Most people in this family's situation would be fearful of bringing random people into their village since Connor had been killed by a complete stranger. But instead, the Verkirkis took this opportunity to reflect on the situation and they realized that, for whatever reason, Jamarian was a kid that was hurting. And if he would have been loved like he should have, this probably wouldn't have happened. These statements made by the family show you just how loving the Verkirkis were and are. In the midst of a tragedy, they chose love and forgiveness when they had every right not to. In one of the most shocking parts of this story, Connor's parents, Jared and Danny, actually reached out to Jamarian's mother, Anita Lawhorn, and showed her compassion. And I can say that if I was ever in this situation, I would probably be angry at the other parents. I would want to ask them questions like, why didn't you keep a better eye on your son? Or how could you have let this happen? But not Jared and Danny. Instead, they gave her money, $150 to be exact, because they knew that she had been struggling. In their minds, she too had lost a child that day. She thanked us. She said she didn't understand how we could be so nice, how we could be so kind or, you know, why we would help her and that kind of thing. Why were you? Because for us, that's how, how we were raised. I mean, I was raised with the ideals of you take care of your community all the time. You help your neighbors, you love your neighbors, and you help those that are in pain. One thing that Jared and Danny never could have known was that they would regret their generous gift to Anita just a few days later. Police had arrested Jamarian, and he immediately became the youngest murderer in the history of Kent County. Investigators were baffled at how this young man could commit such an atrocity at such a young age. But when they looked into Jamarian's life, everything started to make sense. Jamarian Lawhorn had had an incredibly abusive upbringing. When investigators questioned him after the murder, he told them that he killed Connor because he was tired of life. His home life was so abusive that he was willing to do anything to get out of it. A quick glance at his file showed that CPS had previously been called to investigate the Lawhorn residence in May of 2013, over a year before the murder. Jamarian told CPS at the time that his mom and stepdad were severely beating him and would sometimes punch him in the chest and stomach. He also told CPS that when they would get mad at him, they would whip him on his butt and the back of his legs with belts and extension cords. Jamarian had permanent scars on the back of his legs that confirmed this story. Because of the abuse back at home, CPS made arrangements for Jamarian to move in with his father in New York the following month, a year before the murder. Jamarian did end up moving in with his dad that summer and stayed with him for a period of time, but unfortunately, he suffered abuse there as well. When the spring of 2014 came around, Jamarian's father brought him back to Michigan for a temporary visit with his birth mother, Anita, but his dad never came back to get him. I wasn't able to find any proof that his dad even tried to get him back. He never filed any claims with CPS, so it's assumed that he just didn't want the responsibility anymore and chose to just leave Jamarian with his abusive mother. And it's so sad to think about a young boy his age getting tossed back and forth to different family members, living an unstable, abusive, and unhappy life. From the moment that Jamarian arrived back in Michigan, the abuse from his mom and stepdad began immediately. By the end of the summer, he told investigators that he just couldn't handle it anymore. He decided that he wanted to die, go to jail, anything to get out of this situation. 
So he found some of his mom's medicine bottles and took several of her antidepressants and a few promethazine pills. After this, he walked into the kitchen and grabbed a large butcher knife, then walked to the playground and buried it in the sand. He told investigators that he didn't have a specific target in mind that day. Connor Verkirky just happened to be the boy that crossed Jamarian's path on that fateful day. On Jamarian's 911 call, he makes several remarks about how he wants to die, how he wants the police to kill him, and unfortunately, he thought that killing another kid would make that happen. When investigators went to the Lawhorn residence after the murder, they found the home in quote-unquote deplorable conditions. It was said that there was almost no food in the kitchen, the home was filthy, there were no sheets or blankets on the beds, the utilities were shut off, and there was cocaine paraphernalia in the bathrooms. When police arrested Jamarian for the stabbing, he was covered with bruises. He told him his stepdad put them there. They also found what they called deplorable conditions in Jamarian's home. No bedding, no utilities, little food, and that his mom and stepdad were using cocaine. Instead of crying out for help or something like that, he chose to act violently. Which in itself was probably a very, very loud cry for help. Kids are supposed to be happy and carefree. They aren't supposed to live in filth, wonder where they're going to get their next meal, or worry about getting beaten by their loved ones. And from what we've seen, this is what Jamarian's entire life consisted of. After taking a deeper look into Anita Lawhorn, it showed that this wasn't the first time CPS had to intervene in her parenting. Back in 1999, Anita gave up custody to her children in New York when her three-year-old daughter was found with cigarette burns and her one-year-old daughter suffered four different broken bones. It is Michigan law that if someone faces two child abuse cases, Michigan CPS is supposed to ensure that the child or children are permanently removed from their home. Anita's first case was in 1999, and her second was a year before Connor's murder. But Anita Lawhorn isn't the only person to blame in this situation. CPS should have made sure that Jamarian never made it back to his mom's home in Kentwood, Michigan. It is their job and their duty to protect children like Jamarian, and they didn't. And to this day, no one involved in his CPS case has been held responsible. They failed to do their job. Anita Lawhorn and her husband failed to do their jobs as parents. And because of these actions, or inactions, Jamarian chose to take a life that day. It was a lose-lose situation for everyone. Jamarian's mom, Anita Lawhorn, had lost parental rights to two other kids in New York 15 years ago. After her one-year-old daughter suffered four broken bones, and her three-year-old had apparent cigarette burns. They also learned that Michigan CPS had substantiated that Jamarian had been abused by his mom and stepdad a year ago. By law, Michigan was required at the time to try to remove Jamarian from his home, but that never happened. It does feel like, you know, somebody else not doing their job properly cost me dearly. Luckily, after Connor Verkirky was murdered, Anita's other three kids were removed from her home and sent to live with other family members. When Jared and Danny Verkirky found out about the brutal abuse that Jamarian had faced over the years, they were devastated. They felt like CPS's incompetence had cost them their son, and they also felt betrayed that they gave Anita money and felt compassion for her only to find out that she was the monster hiding in the shadows all along. 
but there's no wavering in their anger at Jamarian's mom. After the stabbing, CPS took away her other three kids and filed papers to terminate her parental rights. Connor's parents said they believed those kids were already gone when they gave Anita Lawhorn the money for groceries. Uh, we went there and gave her money with the, uh, with the intent that it would be used for good purposes. If she didn't use it for that, that's on her. Where are you afraid it went? Uh, up her nose. And they feel betrayed by the state. Why do they get to act outside of those laws? Why do they get to be outside of those restrictions? Is it because of their caseloads? Is it because they're in some position of power that they feel that they don't... It's their discretion which rules that they follow? It's not, and it's not. You don't get to pick and choose. Because of the depravity of Jamarian's crime, Michigan courts decided to try him as an adult. We've seen this in cases across America. If a child is capable of murder, there are a lot of people out there that want them put away for life. It's the age-old rule, a life in prison for a life taken, regardless of age. And I can see why people find it unsettling to think about a child committing a heinous crime and then potentially walking the streets again one day in the future. But there are laws to protect our minors. The adolescent brain is very underdeveloped in comparison to the adult brain, and this influences their critical thinking and decision-making. And in some cases, it doesn't seem fair to punish someone for the rest of their life for a decision that they made when they were 12 years old, especially when there are extraneous variables that influence the minor's crime, like in this case, where there was severe and prolonged abuse. We are in no way making excuses for what Jamarian did. What happened that day in August of 2014 was horrible, but these are things you have to consider in cases with minors. There was some controversy over whether or not Jamarian was competent to stand trial, but ultimately they decided that he was. Jamarian's defense team pushed for not guilty by reason of insanity. Jamarian's trial was a hard day for everyone involved. The Verkirky family had to testify, reliving every single detail of that nightmare again. While at the same time, the defense team fought hard for mercy on 12-year-old Jamarian. After four hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict. Jamarian Lawhorn was guilty of first-degree murder. During his sentencing trial, the prosecution wanted the judge to consider sentencing him as an adult after his time in juvenile detention. Your Honor, quite frankly, we just do not know as we stand here today whether or not if we wait, he's 13 right now, if we wait eight years um, for his 21st birthday, is that sufficient? I don't know. We just don't know right now, and it might not be. He's committed a murder at the age of 12. It's going to take an awful lot for him to be rehabilitated, if he ever can be. Your Honor, should you just, as I said before, choose a juvenile option in this, he can get released to the public by age 21. And perhaps under the facts of this case and circumstances as they exist later, that's just not a good idea. That you would not be able to protect society from the defendant in this matter. The defense argued that Jamarian should be sentenced as a juvenile, that he had no prior records, and that within his year of juvenile detention, his behavior and demeanor drastically improved after entering certain juvenile programs. They were confident that by the time Jamarian was an adult, he would be rehabilitated. Jamarian now has a sense of hope with goals of being a writer and a motivational speaker. His cries for help are finally being answered. He is finally getting the counseling that everyone understood that he needed everyone but his parents. Discipline is carried out in a humane way. It's not meted out with extension cords and whoopings by people hyped up on drugs. He no longer has to live in squalor. He has a bed, 
He's clothed and he has three meals a day. He has finally, he finally has positive influences around him day in and day out. While the physical scars on his body from years of abuse and neglect will always be visible, it is my belief that the emotional scars with counseling, education, and stability will heal. Here I believe it's the best interest of Jamari to be served by a juvenile sentence. Before the judge read his sentencing, Jamarian said this. I'm sorry for my actions. I have been going through lots of things during that month. Every night I have cried for all the pain I have caused throughout the whole process. I have, I have had days without eating because what had happened. If I could go back, I would stop myself. I now realize the nightmare that you and I have to live with. I don't show any emotion because if I do, I would not stop crying. After the day, I was convicted. I did not know how to handle it. All I did was tell myself it was nothing like it was all over and I could never live a normal life. People think I'm crazy, but they don't know what, they do not know me. If I could go back, I would take all the pain and stress rather than take a life. And I really don't understand none of this. I just try to, but I really don't and do not like what I did, and neither do you. And I know what I did was wrong. I just do not understand why I did it. I made a terrible mistake. I just want you to know that I am sorry for all the pain you, you, you have been going through. And when I get older, I will help kids not to make the mistake I made and help them become a better person in life so they, so they will not have to suffer the abuse I had to suffer on that day. I was so scared. I was afraid. My stepfather was afraid of my stepfather. I wanted to die because I thought there was no way out. I, I, I now know hurting someone was not right, was not the right answer. I have been talking to a pastor and asked him to talk to the kids in the detention center so he can help them how he was helping me. I'm sorry for what I did. I just wanted to, you to know that. I just wanted you to know that. Ultimately, the judge decided to give Jamarian a blended sentence, meaning he would remain in juvenile court until he reached 21 years of age. When he did reach that point, they would then look at Jamarian's case again and his experience in juvie and assess whether or not he would be resentenced as an adult or be set free. As for Jamarian's mom and stepfather, they were both charged with third-degree child abuse and sentenced to one year in prison and five years probation. At Anita's sentencing hearing, she said this. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry to my kids. And I'm sorry for all that they've had to go through. And I want to say I'm sorry to Jamarian. And I wish, I wish I could have seen the warning signs. And I want him to know that he will always be my son, and I will always be here for him, no matter what. One sales are to the workers and feel their pain every day. And I couldn't imagine how they feel losing their child. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry to the court. I never imagined that I would be here, standing here like this. Um, I think over and over and over again, what, what could I have done different? 
is all that happened my fault. And what kind of help that I could have gotten for my son? I first heard about this story about three years ago. And as I said at the beginning of this podcast, it's a case that stuck with me. I often find myself wondering about how Jamarian's doing. Earlier this year, around January, I thought about him. And I hoped that he was doing well and on the road towards rehabilitation. He had now, at that point, been in juvie for six years. Six years of reflecting on his actions and getting the help he needed. Then I remembered that he would only be 19 this year and that he would still have two more years until the courts decided his ultimate fate. As we got to the state of Michigan for the podcast, I was searching for a case to cover and a headline popped up that brought tears to my eyes. Jamarian Lawhorn released from juvenile detention in March of 2021. He's now a free man. He had improved so much over the years that they decided to release him early. Jamarian had shown excellent improvement within his treatment centers, had mentored many other individuals, and had exceeded everyone's expectations. He had completely changed from the boy he was at 12 years old. The judge told Jamarian, You are an extraordinary young man. I have to tell you that. Every time I see you, I'm more impressed, and you've matured. And I think you've got a terrific life ahead of you. I had no right to kill Connor. I killed him out of anchor that I was feeling. And it's only for me, it's like, it's time for me to make it right, to own up to my mistakes and just give back to the community for what I took. What's Jamarian going to be in 10 years? I mean, I, I want to help people that's in a situation like what I was in to honor them. Because there's a lot of people out there that need that help. A lot. Another part of this story that brings me to tears is Jamarian's support system throughout this entire process. Frank Brionis is the juvenile detention officer that worked with Jamarian since the day of the murder. He believed in Jamarian and stuck with him throughout the entire experience and has now become his father figure. Frank sees many juveniles in his line of work, some that succeed and others that don't. And he believes to this day that Jamarian has the potential to greatly contribute to society. Another woman named Paula Cresswell a member of a prison ministry, heard Jamarian's story and she took him under her wing. She would write to Jamarian in prison, attend his court hearings, support him in any way she could, and now considers him her son. And lastly, his biggest advocate of all is Connor Verkirke's own grandmother, Tony Noonmaker. Over the years, she has stayed in contact with Jamarian, visiting him frequently, she has forgiven him, attended his court proceedings, and made him feel loved and supported. It was a tragedy that Connor was killed, but a double tragedy would have happened if we'd lost Jamarian at the same time. And as long as there was any way possible that he was going to be able to come back from this, um, I was in. I was in. It just, it, I felt called to do it. Do you remember at the beginning of our story when we talked about Connor's grandma speaking at his funeral? telling the crowd, quote, maybe the answer is to open the gates of the village, bring every child in, every parent in, every villager in, bring them inside and hold them. And when that love enfolds them, I think we can make a difference, end quote. And that is exactly what she did. 
Instead of being angry and bitter, she opened the village up for Jamarian and gave him the love that he had been looking for his entire life. Now, seven years later, Jamarian is a free man, a different man, and is finally a part of a village. What's up, everybody? It's Colin here, currently in Galveston, Texas, doing some murder stories. We just wanted to reiterate the fact that at the end of the day, while we focused a lot on Jamarian and his recovery, Connor still lost his life, and we wanted to just end this episode by respecting him and and reminding you that he did die, and that was a tragic event. Anyways, if you want to follow our socials, follow Murder in America on Instagram and Twitter. My personal is Colin Brown. Courtney's is Court Shan. Also, we have a Patreon with bonus episodes and crime content if you look up Murder in America on Patreon. And at the end of the day, throughout all of our stories, we still have no answers. We have only questions. And I'm sitting here in this hotel room, and all I can wonder is the dead don't talk. Or do they? See you on the next one, everybody.